my first uh, job today, actually, is to introduce my new boss. So uh, I've actually spent most of the night looking up uh, synonyms for brilliant, uh, uh, awesome, uh, uh, successful. Uh, actually, in this case, they're all true, uh, actually. Uh, John Allison is the uh, president now and CEO of the Cato Institute, having uh, taken over on October the 1st. Uh, and before that, of course, uh, most of you know he was chairman and CEO of BB&T uh, Bank uh, Corporation, uh, the 10th largest financial services and holding company in the United States. Uh, he's been recognized by Harvard Business Review as one of the 100 most successful CEOs in the world. Uh, he sits on numerous uh, boards, uh, including those for Wake Forest, Duke, and uh, UNC Chapel Hill. How you do that without uh, beating yourself up, I don't quite know uh, down there. He is also, uh, by the way, the author of this book, uh, The Financial Crisis and the Free Market Cure, uh, How Destructive Bank Reform is Killing the Economy. Uh, anybody who wants some real insight into the financial crisis and what happened and how Washington went around making things worse, uh, I advise you to get a hold of this book. Uh, uh, it really got, goes in-depth, and it's, uh, it's a very good uh, view of that. So with that in mind, uh, and before I screw this up, I'm going to turn this over to John and uh, let him say a few welcome remarks. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. I can tell Michael's got a great future at Cato, <laughs> <laughs> really bright future. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. I want to thank all of you for coming. Uh, we think these events are very important where we can have a really good discussion of important issues. I uh, also know, have, uh, know a number of you, and I thank you for your support for Cato and your uh, broader participation in, in the, I think, a movement for the right kind of principles that lead to both societal success and individual happiness and liberty. Um, I think this is a really important issue we're discussing today. You know, you, you can't. You go on the <coughs> television <coughs> and see riots in Greece, and you, it's fairly obvious that the European welfare state is unraveling in a certain sense. And and how it uh, gets concluded is important to the United States because uh, we're part of that greater Western civilization that's been the leader economically in, in global development and global, global prosperity. And of course, we have a welfare state. And and the interesting question is, are we going to learn? lessons from what's happening in Europe, are we going to go down the same kind of path and have the same kind of problems? And are we going to have rioting on the streets someday in the United States? It's a very interesting question. The good news is we have an opportunity to learn if we choose to learn. Uh, the question is, is uh, will we? We do have a special temptation, though, in, in the U.S. that I think is interesting. We have the world's reserve currency. And as such, we kind of have all the gold in the world, which is actually a big advantage uh, in a short-term time frame because we don't have to uh, get the same discipline that, that countries that don't have the world reserve currency have, but we have a huge temptation. And the huge temptation is to leverage ourselves till we get in even greater financial trouble. So will we learn from what's happening in Europe? That's a great question. And what are the lessons? What are the lessons for us? So this is an important conference, an important set of questions, and a a great opportunity to impact the debate about future policy. So thank you all for your support for Cato, and thank you for being here this morning. And uh, Michael, thank you for putting the conference together. Thank you. Well, thank you, John. And now to get right down to the heart of business, uh, I'd like to introduce uh, our keynote speaker today, Joseph Joffe is the publisher and editor of the German weekly uh, Die Zeit. Uh, previously, he was a columnist and editorial page editor of, and I'm never going to pronounce all this correctly. Don't even try. So, okay. <laughs> Something Zeitung. Uh, his essays and reviews have appeared in the New York Review of Books, New York Times Book Review, uh, Commentary, uh, The New Republic, The Weekly Standard. Uh, you can read him pretty much anywhere. He's a regular contributor uh, to op-ed pages, including the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post. Uh, and he is a visiting professor of political science at Stanford since 2004. Uh, he's a fellow at the university's Hoover Institution. He's taught at Harvard, Johns Hopkins, the University of Munich. As you can see, he gets around. And he certainly knows European business and what's going on in Europe 
uh, and uh, very anxious to hear from him his insights on the European crisis. So without any further ado, Joseph Jaffe. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was the nicest introduction I've had in the last 10 minutes. Um, Henry, Henry Kissinger once showed up in Germany after a long transatlantic flight. And he was supposed to speak in German, he has native tongue, and so he looked at the audience and said, you know, my German is where my bags still are, at JFK. <laughs> I, I brought both, I never check in stuff, so I brought my language along. But as you know, as most of you have done jet lag travel, you know this is a dangerous moment when the speaker can fall asleep before the audience does. Um, I want to start before I talk about the um, the uh, the um, you know, the specific of the welfare state. I want to talk about this, the euro crisis and the state in general. The mythology that now extends from the U.S. to Europe is that the markets done it. The markets are the cul culprits who shamelessly, which shamelessly, uh, gorge themselves on all this funny paper that they even, even they didn't understand, let alone the customer. Um, and as always, of course, there's truth in this mythology, but not the whole truth, or even the most interesting truth. Let me use a metaphor for the larger point. The markets fattened themselves on this rich diet, but the table was set by governments, by states. Without the inexhaustible cornucopia of the state, no financial disaster. Uh, yes, the markets grabbed whatever they could, but look at what governments did in the United States. The, the tale began after the Reagan recession, endless supply of cheap money, plus the government encouraged financial institutions not to look too closely at their customers. These were called the subprimers. Um, we want everybody to have property. So cheap money and encouragement by the state to kind of throw, throw out of the window good, good banking practice gave us the bubble that burst in 2007. Uh, affordable housing and all of that. Um, and you see a, a similar pattern in, in Europe to basically what the crisis is all about is enormous expenditure, enormous government expenditures, enormous accumulation of sovereign debt, um, and similar, not everywhere, similar housing bubbles <clears throat> as in the United States. Now let's, tr let's look at the, at, at more closely at Europe. Of course, in Europe, cheap money, as here in this country, was also in play, but it comes, the cheap money came from a different source, so to speak. This is where the euro comes in, the common currency, that grand experiment in European integration. And the irony here is, come, is rich and thick. The euro, as conceived above, above all by the tight-fisted Germans, the Dutch and the Finns uh, in tow, was supposed, to, was supposed to impose financial discipline on each and all, especially on the profligate. Recall the, the basis, basics of the Maastricht Treaty. What did you have to do before you even got in? Well, you had to bring down inflation, you had to bring out interest rates, you had to bring down government spending, you had to bring, bring down deficits. So you had to show your worthiness even before you, um, you were allowed to join. That was a lofty intention, but the effect was perverse, the opposite of what the founders had wanted. They thought that given these Maastricht criteria that the euro would build an optimal currency area where there was none. Europe was not an optimal currency area. Um, where the program would be self-enforcing because it would close the escape hatch of routine devaluation. So, but the euro, eurozone actually was two zones, two currency zones, rolled unthinkingly into one, or with the hope that somehow everybody else live, would live up by the, live by the laws of German fiscal probity and Dutch and Finn and so on. 
So here, one zone was Club Med. You know them, used to be called pigs. Portugal, Spain, France, Italy, Greece, and with Ireland as an outlier. And the others were Club North, Germany and its satrapies, the Dutch, Finland, Austria, thrown Belgium and Luxembourg as well. Um, the other parts of the other parts of the informal Deutschmark zone, Scandinavia, uh, were smart enough not to join the euro. So Club Med lived by a simple economic model: spend and devalue. In other words, stay competitive by 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 devaluing just a little faster than you were inflating. Um, so every year I went to my beloved Italy. The bundles of lira I took became bigger and bigger, but converted into Deutschmarks, the, the price of an espresso remained absolutely the same. That's how countries like Italy remain halfway competitive before the euro through de devaluation. So when the moment came, you know, in the late late 90s, to make the final cut, I had this wonderful conversation with an American friend of mine who lives had been living in Rome for decades. And he said to me, you are going to take in the Italians, aren't you? I said, no way. So why not? Well, look, I mean, they haven't met any of the rules on deficits, on inflation, on interest rates, etc. But you have to take them in. As I just explained to you, we can't. You have to take them in. Why? And now the answer, because they are the best country. <laughs> so what do you mean? I say, it's obvious. Best wine, best design, best dressed <laughs> women, best museums, best art, best renaissance ever, you name it. Best fascism, too. I mean, they, they invented it. <laughs> That's me. It was not him. Uh, and um, he, he said, so there's only one country that could kind of come rival Italy. That's France but they've lost it. They're trying too hard to become like you Germans. Why? Because the French and the run-up actually did live up to the rules. They stopped borrowing. Their national debt even went down. So, that, so they showed the virtue that made them worthy of the Euro, Eurozone. Um, but um, for a while, only in the run-up, discipline worked in the run-up, um, but once in the euro, Club Med went haywire, which is another word for moral hazard. Why did they? Because they could. For suddenly, they didn't have to pay a premium, a devaluation premium, on their lira and pesetas and escudas. Um, uh, there was, it wasn't going to be devaluation, therefore they, you, they had, the, it was euro bonds. It was no longer lira or fra franc bonds. So suddenly they could go on spending like Club Med, but borrow like the Germans. In other words, at very low rates. Um, and so it, the euro paradoxically actually made it easier, rather than imposing discipline, easier to overspend because money could, could suddenly be borrowed at much lower rates than the old lira <coughs> and peseta days. Now, easy... But but, but the perverse effect doesn't end here yet. Easy and cheap money had yet another pernicious effect. It spared these countries the necessities of adapting to a brutal global market. This, this horror story is best told by a set of numbers, namely on unit labor costs, which relate wage to pro wages to productivity and thus, you know, basic competitiveness. I don't, I can't do, uh, I haven't been able to learn PowerPoint yet, but it's just four numbers that I'm going to give you. So unit labor costs. In the first decade of the euro, go up in Italy 30%. In Spain, 35%. In Greece, 42%. In Germany, 7%. So these numbers tell you the whole horror story. Why what was supposed to become an optimal currency area became the very opposite. I mean, you can't become more suboptimal if 
One, the biggest economy has virtually no rise in unit labor costs, whereas the others go through the roof. This is the source of all our problems. If you need to talk about the euro and its problem, just remember those four numbers. <coughs> so, so easy money and no reforms were the roots of all our problems. And easy money made avoidance ref of reform even easier. Now, let me step back from, from the euro crisis and go beyond, beyond the euro, um, which, after all, is only a short, the euro is only a short chapter in the history of European overspending. Um, how does the modern democratic welfare state operate? By the following rules. The first rule is the state overspends as a matter of principle. Uh, more in Greece and most in the United States, as you all know. I mean, <laughs> the kind of deficits the United States is running uh, towards anything, or the Brits, by the way, uh, than, than any of the pigs country have done. But let's talk about the general welfare state. Why, why, is, why does this happen? Why, do, why, is, why is overspending built in? Because power in such states is based on winning coalitions. Its members have to be recruited and rewarded with material benefits and, um, and, and status and economic advantage. When the next government comes in, it will do the same for its own favorite groups, and so expenditures go up. And so doing, governments will set up expectations for more and more, regardless, by the way, of ideological coloration. Um, and the outcome leads to the second rule. This is the rule for how to behave inside a system like that if you're a citizen. The rule is if they give to you, take it. If they try to take from you, scream. This is why benefits cannot be revoked. It, the ratchet effect only goes, goes up only. Third rule is the state will always expand. Um, the democratic state is not this kind of Hegelian embodiment of what is right and good and neutral, a neutral force, but the state is itself a player in search of resource and power. So just as the beneficiary of the modern welfare state has learned to take, the state has learned that it can grow by giving. This is why governments in Europe as well as in the United States spend so much energy on what I would call supply-side politics, on inventing ever-new goodies for an ever-expanding clientele. And the fourth and final rule is, in dispensing these benefits, the, the state creates powerful forces in favor of more. For instance, public sector unions, which, by the way, are stronger in the U.S. than in Europe, because here a kind of... Uh, because here a kind of closely balanced two-party system gives disproportionate power to well-organized groups. Um, so in Europe, here public sector unions bribe and blackmail state governments in Europe. They go on strike and topple governments, especially in France. So these four rules help to explain the enormous expansion of the modern welfare state. Add to this the permissive factor of easy money, which I've harped on in the first part of my speech, the euro. Take the last two decades, um, just the last two decades in Europe. This is how social support spending per capita has evolved. In France, it has doubled. In Italy, almost doubled. In Spain, almost tripled. In Germany, more than doubled. So these rates of increases for social support reveal a relentless upward trend, and this is why, what an irony, why this has been happening all the while when these economies became richer and richer and richer. Um, so, so you might say the richer a country, here's a paradox, the more welfare it hands out. Okay, so there are all kinds of factors involved here, but the secular trend cannot be gainsaid. To, to make the basic point, let me make use a favorite example of mine, Spain. 
In that country, social supports have almost tripled in that 20-year stretch, whereas elsewhere it has only doubled. Why? Because of an unwritten social contract which militates against growth and competitiveness. Spain has the worst labor market in Europe, as demonstrated by 50% youth unemployment, which is twice the average rate, twice the normal rate. So hence, it requires a hell of a lot more welfare spending if so many people cannot gain work. But the two-tier labor market is exactly the problem. It betrays enshrined privilege on one side of the divide and made the devil take the hindmost on the other, where the newcomers cannot break in into the system. This, take lead, this tale leads to a larger moral. Bad economics drives welfare, and welfare conserves bad economics, which in turn rests on ancient arrangements that give power to the privileged and the back of the hand to the rest. What a paradox. In the name of justice, this system breeds injustice. In the name of equality, it has bred the opposite. Now, in the, now let's go back even further to the, to the end of World War II and look at the most fundamental features of the European economy. A very rough tally reveals two basic trends. One, government expenditures as fraction of GDP has gone from the high 20s to about 50. Uh, two, 50%. Two, transfer spending, social support, pension subsidies, medical care, etc., has doubled, and this while Europe went from the ashes and became one of the richest places in the world. So much for the long data. Now, as we get, I want to approach before, before I fall asleep, the end. Now to some correlational acrobatics. And listen to the term, correlational acrobatics, keeping in mind that correlation doesn't necessarily entail causation. Let's relate the secular expansion of the European welfare state um, to economic growth, to you know, just simple equation. If we look at the time series from the 70s, 70s, 80s, 90s, so last 40 years or so, if we look at the, the time series for that period, we see decade by, by decade a slow decline in average growth among the EU 27. Some more numbers, just to make the point. So in the 70s, Europe was growing by a very healthy 3.1%. This was kind of the time when we thought when America was declining and Europe was going to inherit the world. Um, in the 80s, it had come down to 2.5. In the 90s, to 2.1 and the noughts to 1.4. And this year, of course, it will be zero or even double dip, but that's a cyclical, not a very interesting figure. Now, in the same period, looking at the same phenomenon from another perspective, in the same period, Europe's take of the global economy has shed 10 unbelievable points as share of G uh, global GDP. So if we are looking for who is declining, um, it is not the United States, whose share of global GDP has held steady for the past 40 years, 26%, 25%, but Europe. So if you believe in such correlational acrobatics in the early morning, uh, you can argue expansion of the state equals contraction of growth. At least these trends that I've just given you here deliver some telling prima facie evidence. And why would this be so? Well, as government expands, markets shrink. As governments hand out more, they increase moral hazard. Why work if you can make a decent living on social supports? Why work longer if you can take early retirement? Um, I, I, Europe is... <clears throat> Um, Europe is aging, leaving fewer workers to support more dependence. So as a society ages, it becomes more security-minded and risk-averse. So that could be one explanation, cultural, cultural factor, cultural reason. But you can also change perspective and argue, of course, we need more growth to support an expanding army of dependence. 
We need to work harder and longer. We have to break down barriers to competition. This is not happening, unfortunately, yet in the aftermath of the crash of 08. And here's an interesting blip on the public opinion radar. Right, I mean, Europe is moving in the opposite direction, as, by the way, the United States has been moving towards more statism uh, 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 since the crash. So here's just one interesting blip on the public opinion radar. Right now, two-thirds of Germans want the state to iron out, in, to iron out income inequalities. Ten years ago, it was just a bit more than half. So you can see the crisis is not driving reform-mindedness. It's actually driving statism. Um, so in general, we may observe an ideological tilt that doesn't, I don't think, bode well. It's more taxation, more taxation rather than more production. Soak the rich, break up the banks, give us more regulation and redistribution. And I'm not so sure that the United States is that different anymore. I think the one result of the crash has been to bring the two, the two towers of, the, of Western civilization closer together, or the United States closer to Europe. Um, so in this country, unbelievable, government spending at all levels, not just federal, has come up to 40% GDP. It's unheard of in the United States. Add another five and you get European numbers. Um, um, Profit-seeking has gotten a bad name, and security a much more shiny one. And this is maybe, probably, why. No, I'm not going to make any predictions about the presidential election. Um, um, so, but I assume what I think is going to happen, uh, that, that the, um, Obama would win, it would confirm my larger point. There's something inherent in modern democratic state that makes for more government and less market, more security than risk-taking, more re redistribution than making a buck or hustling this venerable American trade. But let's set aside the election. In, in, in one basic way, the United States and Europe have already moved a lot closer. We are all Bernankes now, and Mario Draghi of the European Central Bank is his twin. We all now believe in unlimited money and negative interest rates. Reminds you of Japan, doesn't it? Which is stuck in a 20-year slump. Um, so after the bubble that burst in 2007, the next bubble can't be that far away. Easy money, in the end, is the root of all evil, uh, at least in cyclical terms. So um, Europe and America, that's my last point, are coming together both in terms of welfare statism and financial profligacy. This is very good for Western harmony. We are suddenly all in the same boat. We all believe in the same gods. But I don't know whether it's good for the future of the West as such. Uh, now let me close on a lighter note. The, 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 the talk I've given here is, shows you how pundits proceed. Pundits work according to the following rules. If you see one example, it is probably part of a pattern. If you see two examples, it's a trend. And if you see three, it's a theory. And if you see a coincidence, it's got to be causation. So don't take what I had to say as the revealed truth. Um, in fact, beware of pundits. They are never punished for being wrong. <laughs> That's the best part of our business. Look for the truth to those who come, will come after me on this program, real scholars and real academics who really do know what they are talking about. Folks like me deliver the next truth in tomorrow's newspaper and the next version the day after. But right now, thank you for your patience and thank you for listening. Thanks. Thank you very much, and uh, that sounded truth to me. <laughs> sounded like truth to you? Sounded like truth to me. Uh, we have some time for some questions, uh, if you would. 
just indicate that you have a question, and we have microphones for you. We are simulcasting this. Uh, there are several hundred, at least, people listening to this uh, on the uh, internets, as Al Gore and George Bush would say. So uh, you could, uh, just wait till you get a microphone, then identify yourself uh, in the organization you're with, ask your question, not make a speech, and uh, we'll be happy to take your questions. So I'm going to start right over there. Uh, Warren Coates, retired from the International Monetary Fund. Mr. Jaffa, thank you very much for a very interesting presentation. There's a bit of the history that you left out, and I'd appreciate your comments on it, which is that the first countries to violate the Maastricht Treaty were Germany and France, who did then nothing about it, which destroyed the credibility of it. True. True. What shall I say? <laughs> it, proves, it proves my point um, that uh, national interests are stronger than international institutions. And the euro was about precisely that, how international institutions called European Monetary Union would impose a certain kind of behavior on its member states. But in the, in the crunch, member states go their own way. And that's why it's always tricky to believe, believe that if you create the right institutional setup, good things will follow. My story is how the institutional setup of the euro, which was supposed to have uh, had create good outcomes, actually perversely and paradoxically created the opposite. In the middle there. My name is Stephen Shore. I'm here to offer you. I think that was a superb presentation, but you seem to present the current crisis as the inevitable result of aging demography and the presence of democracy. And you didn't mention immigration. So is the uh, more liberal policy of letting especially younger immigrants into older, basically supporting through their labor the benefits of retired natives of various countries a solution? Or how does immigration play into possibly uh -huh. getting us out of the trap? Uh -huh. How much time have we got? <laughs> a couple of days. <laughs> very, very important issue. Uh, by the way, let me just, just correct a, a misperception which I may have been responsible for. I didn't, the, aging is just one factor of, of slowing growth. I mean, aging just happens, you know, when you have an older population is more risk-averse, uh, less bold, less, uh, um, and more security-minded. That's true for any society. So aging is, is like in general, not good for growth. But what's the difference between the U.S. and Europe? The U.S., as you all know, is the only Western country. No, not the only Western country. The U.S., Israel, and Iceland are the only Western countries that have fertility rates uh, above, above replacement, and Europe does not, and so Europe, the European population is shrinking. The United States and Israel are also staying, staying ahead of the curve because they have immigration, lots of immigration. Europe, I would say in general, has not done superbly in integrating newcomers. And um, and I think in general, the United States being an immigration country, I mean, it's history. It started out in the 17th century as a country of immigration. has, in general, been more successful with its own problems, as we all know. So to come back to your question, if unless we change some basic dispensations in Europe, we will not be able to, to accept and assimilate the kind of large numbers of immigrants that A, want to get in, and B, we would need if we want to keep the, the, the balance between workers and dependents halfway um, upright. Um, why don't we do so well? Uh, I don't like you know, answers like racism, et cetera, et cetera. I'd rather look at labor markets. And we don't have the kind of labor markets that are flexible enough to absorb newcomers 
who inevitably do, don't live up to the um, criteria or qualifications that the majority, uh, that the, 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 the indigenous, so to speak, the indigenous population have. And I think that's one of the reasons why we have such large youth unemployment in, in Europe is that labor markets being arranged in such a way that they protect the insider and exclude the outsider. So to conclude, if, if we even want to begin in Europe with closing the, the demography gap, we would have to do something very painful, which is to really shake up labor markets. But every country in Europe that I know has a very rigid labor market, which yields benefits to some and disbenefits to others. I mean, just, I don't even want to start with the litany, but you um, you can read it in the Wall Street Journal every day. Um, so unless we manage to fundamentally cha change our social contract, we, I don't think that immigration is the um, the solution. Theoretically, yes, but but in practice, no. Sorry for taking so much time. Oh, that's that's what we want. A thorough question. We got one in the back here. Gentleman with the beard. The man with the beard. The few. The bald guy with the beard. Um, uh, my name is Bert Ely. I'm a banking consultant here in uh, the Washington area, and uh, my question uh, has an assumption that, uh, or based on an assumption that, within the next few years, Europe's going to hit the wall, uh, in, uh, fiscally. That uh, uh, it is not going to be able to contain uh, the problems in uh, in Greece and Spain and Italy, and things will just uh, get worse to the point where there is. Uh, you know, some type of, uh, of economic explosion, whether it's the e, uh, the euro just blowing up or uh, major uh, debt defaults in a number of the uh, uh, of uh, the European countries. But to what extent, if that happens, to what extent do you see that uh, as having an effective wake-up call on the United States? In other words, to what extent can uh, uh, the political class and others in the United States look at what's going on in Europe if there is uh, an economic explosion there and some kind of collapse or quasi-collapse, uh, do you see that as uh, helping to, shall we say, turn around attitudes in this country and address uh, and reverse uh, a lot of the trends that we've seen in recent years that are, have been taking us in the direction that Europe is uh, going? The, the question is, if Europe blows up, will this have a salutary pedagogical effect on the United States, right? <laughs> Uh, well, in the, in the past two instances when Europe blew up, uh, the United States marched in there with very large troops. <laughs> <laughs> 19, it was 1917 and 1944. Uh, that, that's not going to work here. But it's a fascinating question which I haven't thought about. Will the, the bad example of Europe be like a good example here and therefore turn the United States, you know, the implicit question is, Will the blow-up of the social democratic state in Europe prevent the erection and expansion of the social democratic state here in America? That was the question, right? Um, I can't tell you, but I can tell you that if you look at the numbers, if you take go, there are some beautiful data uh, that you can find in the, under U.S. Uh, anyway, long-term data. And you, you see that with, with the kind of cyclical, very big, cyc large cyclical swings, government expenditures in the U.S. in the last, 20, you know, last century has been up, up, up. Transfer spending has been up, up, up. Welfare spending, up, up, up. Uh, so, and this certainly uh, not because I think um, Americans looked to Europe and said we have to become like, like them. Uh, by which I mean to want to say that there is something inherent in what I try to uh, expound in my, in, my, in my talk. There is something inherent in the democratic state uh, that expands the state and expands welfare payments. That's why I said the, the richer these countries became, the more transfer payments they made. That's weird, isn't it? I mean, as people become less poor, the state spends more on them. So I want to stop here and say that 
the trend in this country is has been historically, as I said, it did not really subside under Republican administrations. I think some of the worst tax well, spenders have been Republican presidents, like Nixon, like Reagan. We always forget how the budget, the federal budget, expanded under these two. Uh, and I don't think it's a European thing. And if Europe blew up, I don't know what it means, blow up. I mean, um, it would blow up at a very, very high level of prosperity. Let's not forget that. Uh, and let's not forget that the EU, as such, has a slight, slightly larger GDP than the United States has. Um, I don't think that that, whatever the dynamics uh, may be, will have an impact on thinking and policy here. You don't notice that as, say, whatever go US governments from Nixon, LBJ, Nixon, all the way to Obama, and by the way, uh, um, Reagan, they didn't say we're going to spend more because we want to become more like the Europeans. It, it had its own dynamics. That's the point I'm trying to make. Got time for a couple more questions. Go, Arnold. Uh, Arnold Kling, the uh, the latest news I've seen in Europe was the Greek demonstrations where they're waving Nazi flags, and I'm wondering, does the Nazi card uh, is that wearing out with Germany? Are they getting tired of that being played with them? It's it's much worse than you think. Before Merkel, last time Merkel took a trip to Greece, they asked her at the um, you know immigration name, first name Angela, last name. Merkel, country, Germany, occupation, no, vacation. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, I think the Nazi card is, is a stupid thing. I mean, who in his right mind could do what the Greeks and others have done? You know, put, put Merkel in a kind of Nazi dress and make a cracker, cracker whip. It's, it's, it's not even clever, it's just stupid. Um, but is it is the Nazi card waning? It will never disappear, never. I mean, it's going to take a long time before before Germans live down that the glorious period of the twelve year Reich. Um, but um, and and rightly so, I think. I mean, there is there is there is a, there is a sense of of historical guilt which which uh, is rightly there. But as far as the Greeks are concerned, and by the way, the Greeks were the country that suffered outside of the, you know, Poland and Eastern Europe, you know, were, you know, these countries of subhumans. They are the worst occupation outside of Eastern Europe, uh, and the most cruel occupation was in Greece. But, um, uh, so there will be a sense of historical obligation, but as you had, have you been able to observe from the from you know, reading the newspapers, it is limited and rightly so. I mean, we can't solve the problem of the euro. Well, maybe actually we will. I think we will put Greece on permanent dole. It's a small country; we can do it. The only problem with this is. And Greece will remain on the door for 10, 20 years. Um, the only problem is it's very hard to put France and Italy on the door. <laughs> I got time for two more questions. We had one there, and you get the last one. I wish I could see these people. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Joffre, for your ex uh, this extraordinary uh, presentation. I'm Antonio de Lecea, European <coughs> Union delegation here in the United States. Uh, you rightly mentioned that uh, uh, the euro crisis was partly due to, uh, to excess of expenditure and to uh, wrong incentives or, or lack of, of poor incentives for, for growth. And you rightly said that this was precisely not the objective of the euro or, or the euro area or the economic and monetary union. Uh, and the, the, the reason is that uh, the euro was a half-built house. 
So there were not some of the instruments to enforce the discipline that uh, was meant to be, that was the objective. So that on, on the one hand, but do you know that uh, uh, under the force of facts, uh, this is now being, uh, being corrected uh, very, uh, I mean very quickly at a very high speed. Uh, the, uh, uh, the discipline rules have been enshrined in the constitutions or in the highest laws. So that's the, uh, uh, the incentives that you mentioned to spend more are now curtailed by constitutional provisions or even high, high level law provisions. And at the same time, the, uh, the lack of enforcement of uh, structural reforms that, that were in place but were too slow uh, have been accelerated very much so now. So that on the one hand. Uh, the other point is that uh, you mentioned that uh, the, uh, the euro and the advanced economies uh, have inbuilt incentives to, to, uh, uh, to increase uh, expenditure and to increase uh, uh, transfers. Well, uh, and that this, uh, is, uh, this goes counters to growth. Well, let me, show, let, let me remind you that uh, in Europe we also have some countries that had both. Can you speak up a little more? That have both uh, high growth and, uh, and, and high levels of and, 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 and uh, large governments. That's, uh, that's the Nordic countries, some of which are in the euro, some of which are not. Mm. And they prove that uh, you can reconcile uh, the incentives for growth and inequality and, and the removal of inequalities or the reduction of inequalities. That's a choice of society. That is a democratic choice of those governments, of those uh, countries and those societies. So my question would be, uh, don't you think that uh, with the measures that are, uh, are being put in place, and many of them uh, now, uh, you will or we will uh, manage to, uh, to complete the house and to have both the objectives of growth and, uh, and discipline and also the means uh, to enforce that? Okay, two questions. A, um, the new measures that are being being put into 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 place now to to stabilize the euro will they actually do the trick? And the other question is how come certain countries which have very very high rates of exp expenditures, let's say like Sweden with with, with a ratio of over fifty percent of GDP, are doing so well? Theoretically, yes. Everything that that is now being bandied about and being imposed such as what they call debt, debt breaks enshrined in constitutions, uh, should do what we failed to do in the first 10 years of the euro. Um, the question is, again, whether you believe that governments, when it comes to expenditures, you know, the most important tool or weapon or uh, at, at their disposal, will actually live up to this, to, to this kind of discipline. I will bet you, no, they won't. That's not the way governments operate. Um, but they could, and then I'd be happy to be wrong. Um, when I look around, and you know, we are now in the middle of, of a very, you know, you know, we are always in a, in a, in a period of transition, right? Okay. We are again in a period of transition, only more so, because right now these countries, the pigs are now called peripheral countries, are doing all kinds of things. At least they say they're doing all kinds of things. And that, as you watch, as you read the newspapers over the next weeks and months, you have to kind of relate to, to the political responses inside these countries. Um, how much resistance, how much revolt by powerfully placed players in the political system is there? How intimidated will governments become? Uh, will they yield to the street or yield to, to virtue? i tell you what the answer is. So it's an interesting period to watch. Keep in mind um, that um, here are the rules, here are the constitutional amendments, and here's, here's the reality. And, and then you can make up your own mind. You know, it's, um, I, I will not predict, but if you f torture me on pain of torture, I would bet on, on the pessimistic side. You cannot change ancient cultures and ancient social contracts just because Mrs. Merkel tells you to do that, or uh, the IMF or whoever. Not if at the same time 
the spigot has been opened to the max. I mean, I mean Europe is now going in a, into a period of plentiful, cheap money. It's called capping bond yields. Whatever the market doesn't take off, Greece or Italy or Spain, the ECB will, and therefore suppress uh, at least short-term rates. Short-term rates have already come down to about one-half what they used to be. So how cheap money, which I've been castigating here while I was standing there, how cheap money, cheaper money, um, drives virtue is something that you should, uh, that you will see day by day. The nor one last word, uh, is like Yogi Berra said, you know, never make predictions, at least of all about the future. Um, Nordic countries, high tax, high regulation, high growth, true. But look closer at a country like Sweden and Denmark. Sweden went to hell in a handbasket in the 90s with its unlimited welfare state and state spending and cheap money. I mean, it went through an enormous crash. Uh, and it, it was um, enormous devaluation of its currency and went through some pretty tough reforms, as did Denmark. In Denmark, you can be fired even more easily than in the United States. But in Denmark, they catch you. They, they, uh, you, know, they, you don't fall. They, they, they put you into the machinery of retraining and labor exchanges and, and, and prod you, prod, prod you to go back into the, into the labor market. So if you look more closely, you see that some of these socialist miracles that we used to celebrate in the 60s and 70s have become very, very rough and very market-bound. But last of all, last sentence, you can never generalize on the basis of small countries, small, small homogenous, Protestant, and blonde countries, okay? <laughs> uh, you cannot, I mean, the miracle of fertility is Iceland, 600,000 Icelanders. Uh, they have an above replacement rate, and yet the highest labor force partic participation rate of women. So the only thing you can say, the reason why they do is because half the year is darkest night. Yeah, I'm going to have to default uh, <laughs> have to default on this question in order to keep it on time here. Uh, we're talking defaults anyway. Uh, so I uh, appreciate it all very much, and we're going to move on to our next panel. Professor Jaffe, really appreciate your being here. Thank you so very much.